studio. Please enjoy. Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Katie Kitamura back, back in the studio here. Um, the last time you were here in the studio, you might have been to Ann Arbor and not checked in with us. That <laughs> 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 was 2017. That's right. Um, from, with the novel, um, A Separation. That's right. And I, you know, as soon as I came down, it all came back to me. Being, <laughs> being here, I remember the interior very specifically, but it, it's really, really nice to be here. Your back. hair is longer. My hair, is it longer? It, it is. I just I'm cut so... off about yeah. a foot of it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it was getting, I really had pandemic hair. <laughs> it was getting very long. We all did. It was so wild, wasn't it? It, it was a time, yeah. It was, and well, and maybe that I think that'll come up in in a, maybe a moment. But um, Katie Kitamura is here in town um, with the Zell of. Uh, uh, writer's program um, in residency this week for fiction, the novel on the table with us, her latest, Intimacies, a novel, um, out with Riverhead Books, and a a shout out of thanks to Claire McGinnis for sending the book. Um, uh, And Katie, thanks for making the time to come down and talk this afternoon. It's it suddenly feels like spring has arrived in Ann Arbor. And, um, it has. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, it's been day. a very nice week to be here. It's, uh, and a and a, and strange and interesting week, too, because we do have um, right. the geo strike happening. Right. And so there's lots of things happening here on there campus. Is. There um, is. And, you know, I, I just want to quickly, before we start, just express my, you know, absolute support and solidarity with the graduate students and the strike. You know, I don't I don't know if I've told do this, but my my father immigrated from Japan to come to the University of Michigan as a graduate student. So, you know, when I say I support, it feels very important um, to me to to express my support um, for the strike because my father was a a a young immigrant with his very young family in Ann Arbor in Michigan. Um, you know, as as a graduate student, so it, it is quite close to home. And what what did he come? What did your father come to study? Civil Katie? engineering. Oh, yeah. Oh, like Andrew, um, who's engineering for us today here for the sound engineering. Wow. Yeah, so I, I grew up with um, an MGO Blue bumper sticker on our car. And, um, my, you know, my and uh, I have children and I put my children in Michigan sweatshirts. And I have to tell you, my daughter was, well, she's, she was, I think, five at the time. And she's walking down the street in Brooklyn wearing a Michigan sweatshirt. And a, and a man ran up to her and shouted, MGO Blue. And she <laughs> She said, "Why are people shouting exactly. at me?" Exactly. And I said, that, "That's that's the fandom." It's, it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that story. I I was in Italy and saw a kid walking with his 
father. He was a teenager, though, so not small. I don't think I, but I yelled, go blue, you know, <laughs> across this beautiful landscape. And I think uh, it's something in us, right? And It must be. I you, mean, I you, feel like I'm a second generation. You, you are, because yeah. you you teach at, um, in, at New York I, University. I do. I, do. I teach at NYU, which is, which is wonderful. I teach on the um, MFA program, so I'm working with with you know writers who are in the early stages of the, their career, but you know we have really extraordinary people who come up through our program, and and teaching has really been a a, a gift in ways that I, I I couldn't have predicted. You know I think I I started teaching thinking of it a little bit as a as a job and a way of you know getting health insurance and and everything else, and it, and it has been an absolute kind of gift on a creative level, on a human level, but also in terms of my, my own work. It's fed quite directly back into my writing process. And is it because of the conversations that you're thinking about, about like the making-centered aspects, the the craft, or... Because to be a better writer, you're to be a reader sure. and to be engaged with the text. So to be talking with other writers and their, what they're producing. Sure. I mean, that's absolutely true. You know, I, I, I find I give much better notes on, on, on other people's manuscripts. I find I'm quite much, I'm, I'm a bit faster at editing my own work because I've become quite used to looking at completed stories or manuscripts and trying to figure out, you know, how they might be shifted. But I think the most profound way that teaching has changed me as a writer is is that I see the way my students are taking really quite big risks. They're sharing their work early on before it's completely finished. Um, they're exposing themselves to their peers. And I, I find that kind of extraordinarily brave, but also very, very moving. And I, and I, I, you know, I didn't do an MFA. I've never been workshopped. I, I've never, I've, I, I've always tended to hold on to my work until the very last moment. I share work very late. And I think watching my students, watching them kind of share things before they were fully finished and kind of hermetically sealed, I found really inspiring. And so with this last book, um, I actually shared it with my agent and my editors and a couple of readers before it was done, which is something I've never, I've never done before. And I really listened to their feedback and I inputted their response as I was writing the kind of final third of it. And so my process actually changed from my experience of teaching. And what, from their feedback... What did it make sense to you? Because you said it impacted the final third of the revision of the book, or just the final of the third book, of the book of itself. the book itself. I hadn't finished the book, so that's quite unusual for me. I, I usually will have an incomplete manuscript before I share it with anybody, including even even my husband, my husband, who's, who, also who's also a writer and who's my first reader. I usually wait until I'm completely done before I share it. But I I shared it a little bit earlier because I'd had the growing sense over the last couple of books that by the time I'd shared the manuscript they were quite polished and they were quite finished in a way but it also meant that some of the problems in the books or maybe I would say the kind of limitation of the books was already ossified in some way you know there was a kind of a perimeter around the book and and I felt that if I shared it earlier there might be the possibility of kind of pushing the book in a way that wasn't possible you know when you present somebody with a very polished manuscript it's very finished it gets harder to shift it and so I wanted to do it when it was a little bit more pliant um and that was it was an interesting experience I've, I've never done so much uh collaborative editing on a book before that is a big thing yeah <laughs>
<laughs> it was. I was working with two really brilliant editors. Um, in fact, three. Uh, Laura Pucciasipi at Riverhead, who's, who, who was also the editor of my last book, and then a wonderful editor, my editor in, in the United Kingdom, um, Mikhail Chavez, and, and another editor there, Anna Fletcher. And they were, they kind of all worked together. They always presented a very united front in terms of the notes. But, um, you know, I had three sets of eyes. I had three incredibly smart people looking at the book. And probably more importantly, I had, I think, three people who who know my work quite well, who understand what I'm trying to do, and so who would be able to direct me in ways that felt very true to what I was trying to do, which is also what I'm trying to do when I teach. I'm never trying to, um, in a workshop, I'm never trying to nudge a student away from their own vision of, 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 of what they're doing. I'm always trying to help them toward what they want to achieve or possibly to even see what they want to achieve because it's not always clear to you as a writer but but you know understanding the aesthetic the ambition the the uh, sensibility of the writer is, is really important to me before I give them notes yes it's so it's so good to hear that because I feel like sometimes there's this impulse to impose right instead of to see what is already happening what is this thing and what does this thing itself want to be yeah i think that's absolutely true and i often tell my students that one of the most useful things you can learn in an mfa program or any creative writing program or or workshop is is both how to take a note and also how to ignore a note because a lot of the not all of the notes will be useful for you and it's as important to know which ones are not productive and to know which ones will actually spark something that comes from you because I think ultimately the solution always comes from the writer not from the person giving the note right but you almost have to hear it so that you Mm -hmm. can understand the difference in feeling that you have Mm -hmm. how you respond to it um I, yes, exactly. I love that because in every class here, every writing course at Michigan, that's what we're trying to do in creating this workshop community. Right. And and it is interesting to think sometimes there's going to be people who are get what get who get what you're up to yes. a bit more than others. Yes. And there might be a voice that is you might need to listen to, even if it's not something that you want to do, but you have to consider it so that you know why. Yes. I think, I think, and conversely, I do always also say that you can get a good note from an unexpected source. Yes, as well. I know. I, I think you can start to think like in my workshop, these people, I'm not so sure they get what I'm doing, but they can often be the people who will have so, some yes. bit of clarity. And say um, the most difficult thing. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But you know, I think workshop is a kind of exercise in radical empathy because yes. you're not just trying to imagine how the writer is feeling in the room, which is also something obviously that you're trying to do is understand, you know, how are they absorbing the notes? How are they responding to them? But also you're trying to envision what they want to make. And, and, and that, that's, that's actually quite an intimate, intimate thing. Yes. Yeah. Intimacy is a novel. <laughs> that was not, that was that was not a that was not a pivot into yeah, my into my like, book. Okay, but the real reason <laughs> no. now that we're here today. Um, but you know what? Let's let me do. I want to talk about this lovely book that um, is. Oh my goodness! Uh, when I first received it, um, when Claire sent it, I remember thinking um, it said a national bestseller, an Obama summer pick, and these are things that I had I had forgotten. I had known at the time. Um, because this book came out in 2021. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, oh, it's cruel because it can't be. It's like, oh, take it as, as your summer read, <laughs> your beach novel. Take it to the pool with you and your mask or whatever. But um, 
it's such, I mean, I can see, I want to tell you that this is going to be my first, like, I want to go back and finish, like, reading this. Because sometimes for the program, mm. I have to read <laughs> very really quickly. Fast. <laughs> and, um, but the thing is, is that already I want to have more time with it, oh, which I think so is a kind. it's a, a good a, a, a good sign. And the fact, I mean, who am I to argue with Obama too? <laughs> I mean, um, Katie, before we get any further into the program, because I find it so easy to to talk with you <laughs> that I feel like I want to just read your short bio and on course, the book yeah. just as part of the yeah. convention, and then yeah. and then we'll we'll get back to our conversation, Katie Kitamura. Most recent novel, A Separation, was a finalist for the Premio Gregor von Redzorio and a New York Times notable book. Her two previous novels, Gone to the Forest and The Long Shot, were both finalists for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. Her work has been translated into more than 20 languages. She teaches in the creative writing program at NYU. And is here in person this week in Ann Arbor with her her fantastic novel. Um, Katie, so when it did come out, we were talking before we came on air briefly that it was, the book tour was a little different than what it was like for a separation, for example. Yeah, it was, it was on Zoom. (laughs) It was on Zoom. Um, You know, there were, there were good aspects to that. I was, you know, you, People can log in from wherever, and and that's very nice. And I also had the chance to be in conversation with writers who were, you know, I wouldn't have been able, you know, I I could do an event with Dana Spiata for Women and Children First in Chicago, even though neither of us were were there. And, you know, I I don't know where I was, and Dana was was in upstate New York, I think. So that aspect of it was was really wonderful. You know, the thing I think I missed the most beyond the opportunity to kind of interact with readers of course was was being inside bookshops because when i'm on 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 book tour it it's my you know it's this wonderful thing you you read at a bookshop and you can ask booksellers what they're reading and what they recommend and and that's often you know I, in a lot of ways my my writing was transformed by one such interaction, which didn't happen with me. It happened with my husband, but he was on book tour um, at Elliott Bay. In Seattle. In Seattle. And Rick Simonson gave him a copy of a Javier Marias book called A Heart So White, which Hari then gave to me. And I I read, and it, it really did transform my sense of what kind of first person voice could do and and has been has been very influential on my work and that came out of a kind of book tour bookseller interaction so you know i i I, when i was here in 2017 i i did an event at literati and i and i met natalie bakufalos and that was you know who's who's a friend now and all these little things that happen don't quite happen the same way in 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 a zoom in a zoom context right Um, but i'm happy to be here now and i'm going to stop by literati and yeah pick up some books (laughs) and hopefully see natalie while you're here i am i think i'm having lunch with her tomorrow (laughs) yeah yeah shout out to natalie I am. I am. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So when you started Intimacies, you do, because in the acknowledgments, you mention um, the the writer who you just, um, Javier Maria, is it? Is it? Is that who you just mentioned, the book? Yes. Do I mention that? I feel like you... Okay, well, I'm not going (laughs) to, like, turn the pages to try to find it but it was um 
maybe at the break I can find it, but because it wasn't the first time I yes, heard it. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I probably said it last time I was here. No, no, I'm not. I'm not sure unless it was that long ago. That it the was. Transformation it was. Happened. It was. It was. It was. It was a really. You know, I, I was. I was having lunch with some of the um, MFA students here, and they were saying, you know, what is, was there a book that was pivotal or transformative in some way? And 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 you know, every book is can be transformative on a personal level of course but that's probably the one that was most genuinely transformative on a writing level for me because you felt like you could see like a way forward a new power to the voice yeah I'd always had a lot of anxiety about writing in first person I'd never written in first person before um, particularly in fiction and there was something about the authority of this first person voice that I found very difficult. I'm not I'm not a person who's comfortable. I, I hate public speaking. You know, every time I have to give a lecture, it's a small nightmare for me. You know, I, I, I'm a person who I consider myself an observer rather than somebody who is um, who is comfortable being observed. Um, I, I am terrible at telling stories as well. You know, no. at, at, a, at a dinner party, I always no. just kind of midway through cave and say anyway. And then it, it just so, <laughs> so yeah, I trail off. I, I, I really do a, a lot of trailing off. And so all of the kind of brio and, and authority that I have associated with first person narration um the certainty I've, I've tended to associate with first person narration was felt very alien to me as a fiction writer marius it's it's entirely about uncertainty nothing is certain and he achieves that in the quality of his first person voice and so that opened a complete door to me where i thought oh i can i can actually write about lack of authority i can write about uncertainty uncentering things through the first person and that's become really central i think to my to my project as a as a as a writer and destabilizing yes this exactly. main character yes exactly we, let's take a short break and Great. then we'll come back okay. today on living writers katie kitamura is here her novel intimacies out with riverhead i'm t hetzel we've got river and andrew behind the glass and we'll be back just tuning in so glad you did you've got living writers and today katie kitamura is here in the studio with her novel intimacies katie would you mind reading no 
Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I should just say, so the novel is about a simultaneous interpreter who uh, leaves New York and moves to The Hague to take a job working at a war crimes tribunal. So a lot of the book is really preoccupied with the act of interpretation. So the bit I'm going to read out is is just a little little short section about, about the work of interpretation. Perfluency was merely the foundation for any kind of interpretive work, which demanded extreme precision, and I often thought that it was my natural inclination toward the latter, rather than any linguistic aptitude, that made me a good interpreter. That exactitude was even more important in a legal context, and within a week of working at the court, I learned that its vocabulary was both specific and arcane, with official terminology that was set in each language, and then closely followed by all the interpreters on the dream. This was done for obvious reasons. There are great chasms beneath words, between two or sometimes more languages, that could open up without warning. As interpreters, it was our job to throw down planks across these gaps. That navigation was more significant than you might initially think. With inconsistent interpretation, for example, a reliable witness could appear unreliable, seeming to change his or her testimony with each new interpreter. This, in turn, could affect the outcome of a trial. The judges were unlikely to note a change of personnel in the interpreter's booth, even if the voice speaking in their ears suddenly became markedly different, switching from male to female, from halting to deliberate. They would only note the change in their perception of the witness. The first time you listen to an interpreter speaking, their voice might sound cold and precise and completely without inflection. But the longer you listened, the more variation you would hear. If a joke was made, it was the interpreter's job to communicate the humor or attempt at humor. Similarly, when something was said ironically, it was important to indicate that the words were not to be taken at face value. Linguistic accuracy was not enough. Interpretation was a matter of great subtlety, a word with many contexts. For example, it is often said that an actor interprets a role, or a musician, a piece of music. There was a certain level of tension that was intrinsic to the court and its activities, a contradiction between the intimate nature of pain and the public arena in which it had to be exhibited. A trial was a complex calculus of performance in which we were all involved and from which none of us could be entirely exempt. It was the job of the interpreter not simply to state or perform, but to repeat the unspeakable. Perhaps that was a real anxiety within the court and among the interpreters, the fact that our daily activity hinged on the repeated description, the description, elaboration, and delineation of matters that were outside, generally subject to euphemism and elision. Thank you, Katie. Sure. To repeat the unspeakable, right? There's a part in it, um, in intimacies, when the, the main character is talking about I believe it's her experience and not Amina's. Right now, I'm I'm wondering. Yeah, it's a little which, slippery. <laughs> yeah, there is slipperiness, which I think is intentional yeah. too to set up yeah. what happens, yeah. right? But but there's a moment where it's so hard at first, uh, like the first day, um, because of like the the level of like uh, crime or treachery or so, and then um, the interpreter <laughs> finds himself suddenly. Like this next day, it's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Like there's a different tone mm-hmm. in their voice mm-hmm. and in the performance mm-hmm. of the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things I was thinking about a lot is is uh, 
when I started writing this book, and it, I was talking about this with some of the the writers in the program earlier today. Is you know, do you do you, do you write toward ideas, or do the ideas emerge in the writing? And I, and I have to say that with this novel, there were there were certain themes and ideas that I knew I wanted to write about, and and I think normalization was absolutely one of them. Um, and that's a little bit what what I think you're de- describing is that you know very rapidly the subject matter, the content of the trials I, th- I think inevitably becomes normalized through through exposure um, f- for the employees. And then the other thing I wanted to think about was complicity and how the characters are implicated in the work that they're doing, even though they are nominally people without power and people who who could be called cogs in the machine. So those are kind of a couple of the things that I I was thinking about um, as I was writing the book. Um, I I think some of what that character is experiencing is a kind of cognitive dissonance between the horror of, of what she is speaking and what she is describing and the quite ordinary circumstances of her of her work and her her day to day life and and that was something that I I knew was important to me in the book because I think that is something that often all of us we live in that state of cognitive dissonance we know that there are things of a real true emergency happening everywhere around us from climate change to genocide um, and yet I, I think about these things constantly every single day every single hour and, and yet I, I i worry about things like what am i going to give my kids for dinner <laughs> you know you you have very mundane concerns and that is what it means to be human it, it, it's i don't think there's any shame in having ordinary concerns but i think it's it's being aware of that dissonance and, and not letting your yourself become um numb to it in some way i mean that 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 is that is what our task is in some way is is to remain committed to the daily act of living in its small granular petty detail and at the same time try to apprehend these things that seem almost too large for human comprehension yes and i think this has been something that's been uh, we've had to live with in such a different way during yeah covid <laughs> right and I, yeah. I would say before that also um with a, such a shame change and shift in administrations yes. politically yes. And, yes. and so this idea of normalizing what is absolutely abnormal yes. is something that is rings so true and something to be interrogated and to be uh, i don't know illuminated i mean it, it, it's interesting you know it, the book is set in 2016 it's it's um on the eve of the brexit vote um, oh, which yes. is which is which is pretty significant, I think, kind of tonally for the, for the book. That's not just there as a kind of time marker, but it it, it is a, a kind of moment when a lot of the institutions and international ideals, whether it's the International Criminal Court or the EU, um, are kind of faltering to some extent. But it was written during during the previous administration. It was written between 2016 and and 2020. And and you know, I often think I I, I the question of, of as a writer do you um, people sometimes I think people you can think that a book that is about the Trump administration or a book that is about climate change means that that is a subject matter but to me it's the air we breathe it's impossible as a writer for that not to shape whatever you're writing whenever it is set if I wrote something that was set in 18... 
42. Why not? not, Right. But but it would be infused with those anxieties. I think that's inevitable. You know, we're sponges and we absorb all of that. And and so, you know, I I think there has actually been quite a lot of really wonderful historical fiction that's been coming out. I think all those writers are thinking about the same concerns that, you know, that we we just we just mentioned. Um, So even though the book, strictly speaking, takes place before the American election and before the Trump administration, it, it is absolutely a book to me that feels to me kind of about that anxiety when i say i'm thinking about complicity of course i'm thinking about what it means to be an american citizen during these periods um how do you square your sense of of um disempowerment with nonetheless the need to do something um all all those things were were very much things that were at the forefront of my mind when i was writing and what you put your character yes through (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right that that was the world that was created this this pressure and these layers of what you can know and what you don't know and what you think you know yes even well it's it's in i mean i i i actually read his work after quite a bit after i finished this book but the um philosopher timothy morton has this uh concept of hyper objects which are things that are kind of beyond the scale of human comprehension and and i think um he would be a a hyper object for him would be climate change for example it's something that we can kind of perceive shards of it but we somehow are unable to fully grasp the totality of what climate change means one of the things that was interesting i i i sat in on a trial at the international criminal court which is which is a court that the core in the novel is loosely based on <laughs> not intended to be a representative of but you know it it has bears some similarities with the ICC and I, I I think I sat in on about a week of the trial of Laurent Bagbo of um, from Cote d'Ivoire and one of the I was following quite closely and it was I guess about two sessions of two hours each with breaks every day, it was very hard to understand what was taking place. You know, one week of a trial, the narrative was very, very hard to grasp. It was hard to understand what was good for the prosecution, what was good for the defense. Um, you know, I, I'd, of course, read up on the case and I had some sense of what was happening, but but I really understood the degree to which the larger narrative of what was taking place in that trial could easily escape somebody who was involved in the day-to-day minutiae of interpreting the work. And so this idea became really interesting to me because I think it applies to all of us. We don't we don't always have the complete picture of what is happening around us, and often we seek that out retroactively. Often we find it in a pre-digested form, whether it's news or hearsay or, or whatever it is. Um, but our actual experience is is living with quite a few shards and and trying to assemble them in some way. So that was part of the experience that I wanted to capture in the book. You know, it's not a courtroom drama. You don't get all the beats leading up to what, you know, it it kind of ends quite abruptly. I mean, that was another interesting thing about writing a book, not in in real time, but I was was writing it as the trial was unfolding, is um, we were talking about the end of the book earlier. Uh, When I started writing the trial had not concluded, and and the case in the book is not Bagbo, but again bears similarities to his his trial. Um, and then he was found not guilty. Maybe even as I was reaching the end of the draft, and I thought, well, I guess I will integrate that. 
Um, so that was interesting because that was not a given to me at all as I was writing the book, even though, you know, looking statistically, the number of convictions that the court has had are, are, is very low. Um, so statistically, probably the person would have been found, the former president in, 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 in the novel would be found not guilty. But as it happened, the, the case that I was trying structurally to model it on, um, he was found not guilty. And for you, did that, as, as the writer, did that feel... <laughs> like a harder is that did that make it more morally complex for you as well or more that um uh it would there were a lot of um kind of moral complexities to the novel in a lot of ways i was talking to a friend of mine a, a kind of a wonderful writer <laughs> who, who's one of the funniest people i know and, and she said I think the takeaway from the book is that everybody gets away with it. Yeah. <laughs> and she was saying people lie, they do horrible things, they treat people badly, and they all get away with it, particularly the male characters. And, you know, I hadn't thought about <laughs> it specifically in that way. I, there certainly wasn't, I don't think that was a kind of, uh, but, you know, you write you write what you see around you. And that, that happened to be what I was seeing a- around me. Um, you know, there were a lot of questions that I had about about writing the book um, about about what it meant, you know, what position you take as a writer in relationship to that material as well. You know, there are a lot of small decisions that, but to me, quite significant decisions that had to be made. Um, I knew, for example, that I did not want the former president who's been accused of war crimes, I didn't want him to be in control of the narrative of what had happened. Um, and that I wanted the only kind of representation of that to come from from a witness um, who had been who had been a victim um, of the violence. And so there are small decisions you make as a writer that just it it just I don't know if there's actually any reason for that, but uh, it, I would say it, yes. <laughs> but but it it was not possible for me to write to give that platform to this character. It just didn't feel possible for me. And I think, you know, you control very little, but as a writer, you do control the universe of of your book. Um, And so that was a choice I made. We're going to take a short break. Today on Living Writers, Katie Kitamura is here. Her novel, Intimacies. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, you're just in time. Today on the program, Katie Kitamura is here. Intimacies, a novel, out with Riverhead Books. Um, so we'll hop back into the conversation. Um, at the Just before the break, 
And Katie, you were talking about um, some decisions you had made with because these are complicated stories. You can't be at the Hague mm-hmm. <laughs> at a criminal try like a war crime war crime tribunal and not be in deep. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting though that this um, the 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 former president who is on trial at towards the end. You let him have a moment with our main character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where he almost he he shows the side where, for example, the United States, mm-hmm. which is the country she's representing, and that's her mm-hmm. country, is also complicit or could very well be on trial. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to have that destabilization mm-hmm. <laughs> happen mm-hmm. because this is also you showing the uncertainty of the complexities that everyone's dealing with. You're talking about getting so close to the minutia that you can't see it, people in everyday life sometimes. And then sometimes there's people like this that think they are the puppeteers. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's one of the, you know, I had a really kind of startling experience when I was visiting the ICC where I, you know, it's, it's a it's a it's a very transparent organization or it tries aspires to be a very transparent organization so members of the public can sit in on on a trial you don't need to have special credentials anybody can just you know fill out a form and 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 come and sit in on the trial and so i i was sitting in the public gallery which is kind of you know in the mezzanine level looking down on the courtroom and and you're behind glass and you're kind of like in the equivalent situation of of, of what used to be called the gods you know in the in the seats in the theater um, or maybe still is i don't i don't know <laughs> and and i was i was watching the trial and i really felt myself to be a pure observer i felt myself to be a kind of neutral recorder of what was taking place and i think that's often how novelists feel as as well and what happened is that bugbo turned and looked at me and made eye contact with me because he realized that there was somebody new sitting in the gallery because there are not so many people who observe the trials, especially the kind of doldrums of the middle period. Um, and that was a really strange and destabilizing moment of recognition. Um, and it reminded me that we're not, we are observed. There's no such thing as an invisible observer. There's no such thing as a neutral observer. There's no such thing as a neutral witness. A pure either. observer. Yeah, there is nothing like that. And that's something that I took quite seriously um, as I thought about my own writing. So, for example, there there is a moment when I had to kind of craft a witness testimony. And I, I really... I drew quite... I, I studied a lot of transcripts in order to write that section. And I really felt troubled or I, I I did really think about what it meant for me as a Japanese American person to be writing this material. You know, what does it mean to be crafting these words, to be creating this narrative, to be telling this story? And the only way I could work through it was to put that question directly into the novel. So what happens in that scene is the interpreter... Um, who obviously when you interpret, you interpret word for word. So when somebody says I, you say I. And so she's speaking the testimony of this woman who has, you know, suffered through horrific trauma and loss. And at some point she says this, it feels wrong to be speaking this I. And this I doesn't feel like a big enough word to fit the two of us. And, and that's very much me thinking about what it means as a novelist to be writing that material. 
Yes, and to it connects to what you said earlier, Katie. Too this this idea of the using the eye in your last mm-hmm. two novels and what that means to you. Yes. Even yeah yeah. I mean, I always want it to be a slightly porous. <laughs> <laughs> A, a, a kind of, a, you know, slightly. I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think it's. I do write these characters who are quite effaced and self-effacing, um, and it's a kind of. There's a kind of a delusion to that as well, which is what I really wanted to think about. I think in this novel, you know, we we are, however much we think we're small, we're not small, and we are implicated in all the systems we're part of, you know, down to the language we use and, and the places we work and the country, you know, we're citizens, we're, we are implicated in all of that. And so that kind of act of, I, I had to kind of think about what, what that act of self-effacement meant and, and what was behind it. It does feel like a reckoning here in intimacy. I hope so. Does, <laughs> you never it know. It does. Um, I think also the the story that you just relayed to us that is actually from your own life also appears in the novel. You give it to a character, a moment of... I, I do. Well, I gave one moment in, in particular... Yes, I, I did. I gave, I gave a moment that was similar to that, um, to one of the interpreters. And then there's one moment that was in some ways even more personal and, and quite funny. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I had finished writing a, a, a draft of the book and I um, you know there was, it was a, a, an early draft and you know so when I was in The Hague I, I decided to pivot to go That's back okay. a little bit but when I was in The Hague I, I did all the kind of you know writerly business of like finding the house where my characters might live in the neighborhoods and, and doing the commute to the court and, and all of those things that you know I was kind of almost play acting being a writer researching their novel um, and, and I did all of that and I, and, I, and, I, and, and I think most of the kind of way the city appears was faithful to how that character might experience it but when I finished the novel um, I suddenly realized that I had in fact spent quite a bit of time in The Hague as a child um, my my father had taken sabbatical and in in I think um I'm now forgetting the name of the university but but very close to the Hague and so I think I'd spent at least two summers there when I was young and and suddenly I you know my father's dead and I have these kind of had these very cherished memories of time with him as a child that I knew took place in Europe somewhere but I didn't know exactly where and in particular I had this memory of running on the dunes with him which felt I thought I'd, I'd convinced myself that I'd imagined it because I was a child and in my child's memory, these dunes were enormous, not anything that you would think you would see in, in kind of continental Europe. And, and so I convinced myself that it was a kind of, you know, something I'd invented. And then I realized that there were, of course, dunes in The Hague, that all of these memories, I suddenly did exactly, you know, I called up Google Maps and I could look and pinpoint and put on a map. I could map out these very, very special shards of my past that, that I'd never been able to place. And and that moment was really powerful to me. And I suddenly, I think some part of me understood why I'd wanted to write the book set in The Hague. And and then I, I gave that moment to the character, which is something I've never done so completely and shamelessly. But that moment, it, 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 the character experiences that moment. And it's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, it's actually what is, how intimacies is, I feel like that's, that's the moment 
that's the moment mm-hmm. we see Adrian again. Like, mm-hmm. like there's that, but yeah, yeah. But yeah. then they also yeah. return to the. It's almost like these the yes. dunes are this yeah. symbolic next to the water. But it's just that's incredible. Oh, I love that story, Katie. Yeah, it was it was funny, you know. Uh, um, you know, people sometimes ask, like, why is it set in The Hague? And, and obviously, the, the kind of obvious answer is that it's because the court is set there. But I think the actual answer was that some part of my unconscious or my subconscious wanted to return to that location. Yes. Um, it, you know, it's um, that, that's actually, I, I can see how um, that would be a big risk to do also to give something that's so close to who you really are as the maker, the writer, um, because you also decided to keep the narrator unnamed Mm -hmm. throughout. Mm -hmm. So there's the slippage as well. I mean, you are not this person. (laughs) And yet, there's the you give this understanding to this person, there's some very real cross currents between you I mean, I mean it's, and she's unnamed she she's she is i mean i guess there are two things i would i was you know i i, I don't i don't i'm kind of fascinated by identification in novels you know i, I think it's there, there there are words that come up often in in a workshop context that i i kind of hate you know Words like relatable or likable or you know um, th- those I-, I don't I don't think the purpose for me of reading fiction is to read a character I already relate to in some ways. Um, is that sort of boring then? Because what are you? I I, th- I just think fiction can do much more in in some in some ways, um, and so I. Um, I'm always interested in kind of trying to trouble that that ease of connection, and I think withholding a name, withholding backstory. I give very little backstory in my stories. You know, in my novels, there's almost no backstory. Um, there is a single paragraph on the first page with a lot of backstory, which I added under duress. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was twisting your arm. Which I added under duress at the very last possible moment. I think the opening paragraph gives just a, for me a kind of extraordinary amount of plot and backstory. Um, and that oh. was Andy, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I could see how the f- chapter one could very well begin. I arrived in The Hague with a one-year contract. Yes, instead but instead it begins. It is never easy to move to a new country. You're like, no, no kidding. <laughs> let's, Katie, let's take a short break. This yes, is wonderful. Um, today on Living Writers, Katie Kitamura is here with her novel, Intimacies. Um, such, such a beautiful one. Um, we've got Living Writers, and we'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Katie Kitamura is here. Intimacies, a novel. Um, we were talking about many things, <laughs> but one of them was the power of having an unnamed main character. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I suppose there, there are two things, or maybe a couple of other things I would say about that. Um, you know, as I was saying before the break, I, I do have a tendency to uh, withhold backstory. I'm not so interested in writing backstory for my characters. Most of the big markers of identification, including a name, are are withheld. Um, and part of that is, I think, to trouble the kind of paradigm of identification that people tend to have with a novel, that I'll identify with somebody who is like me in some some way. Um, and instead, I, I, I hope that what the novel does is kind of invite the reader to step forward into imagining and filling in those spaces. Um, but also it's a bit of a gamble that by immersing the reader or a reader into the point of view of a character so that you see the world really strictly only from her eyes, you will come to feel quite close to her nonetheless, even though you don't have some of the kind of basic information that we're told we need in order to kind of identify with with a character. So that that's that's kind of the premise that I'm I'm working with. You know, I don't know that it always works. I think uh, I think people often find my read, writing quite chilly and quite cold and removed. And and I I think that's a you can't please everybody. I think that's a kind of gamble that that you take. But for me. It's a kind of interesting process. I, I like to kind of, you know, I, I don't necessarily need, need. I just need people to keep reading. That's that's right. what I what I hope for. Um, and also yeah. to trouble and to have some destabilization of uh, coming to them as well yeah. through the narrative yeah. that they may able be able to see somehow their own life yeah. experiences yeah. from that slant or from that angle, right? Or yeah, I mean, I, 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 I suspect or I've been told that the narrator in Intimacies is a bit less prickly than the one in A Separation, which I think is true because I, I kind of had to read a bit of A Separation recently for something and I was like, oh, she's quite spiky. <laughs> um, but, but, but when you say I've been told. Yes. What's that like to feel like other people are telling you about something that you actually know intimately? You know, I do. I do think books, especially with this one, I, I think because possibly because I've had the most kind of feedback in general about it than of all my work. It sometimes seems to me that people are reading a radically different book, and in that sense, I do think books are made in the in the space between the reader and the and the writer. Yes. You know, it, it is interpretive. If it's I, a good book, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I and, and I I experienced that myself. You know, um, one of my a really important book to me um, is Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, and and that's a book. Each time I read it, because I'm a different person, it's a different book, mm. and it's almost magical. It's like I can't quite believe it. You know, I read it when I was, I would say I read it once every five years or so, and and. Every single time, it's as if I've, I'm, I'm rediscovering the book completely. And not all books are like that, but that book is really like that. Um, so I do, I do think that's true, and I, I think that's um, it's quite exciting in a way that that I don't know. It, it, it's you write a book and you're very much alone, and and the book is a fixed thing to me, but it's not to the reader, and that's that's nice. I think, right? Even if they don't like. It. <laughs> I, okay, <laughs> I just want to 
underscore the fact that it's an Obama summer <laughs> pick <laughs> because Katie's saying this about it. Um, I did think it was interesting to see that how in a couple of different places some how the main character was talked about mm. as if almost as if the title Intimacies was inviting this um, this one reading <laughs> of what it means to be intimate mm-hmm. by the um, a reader or a critic instead of thinking what Intimacies can mean or not mean mm-hmm. which is what it seems like is the work of all of like every person that the char- the main character meets um like who is this person that's coming into the orbit and that's right how yeah. and some of them come back in different surprising ways i mean it was it, it's intimacies in the plural rather than the singular and it it is you know i i had a, a very different working title for the novel and it changed the title changed quite late in the process of writing the book and so i had a complete draft by the time i i finished by the time i i kind of came upon the 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 final title and um it, it when i read the book I, I i just realized that there is of course a kind of obvious w- intimacy that tends to have a positive connotation that, that she's seeking in her relationships whether they're friendships or, or romantic relationships but the kind of critical intimacies in the book are actually ones that are forced upon her it's a book that's full of sexual harassment and sexual intimidation and obviously the most troubling closeness in the book is the one that emerges between her and the former president through the medium of shared language and interpretation and there's a moment when she starts to feel as if by speaking his words there is a closeness there that she's not comfortable with and and that's really what the book is is about um but but, you know intimacy I, i think particularly here in the united states has such a positive connotation but but there's all kinds of intimacy and 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 there's danger to intimacy as well. And and that's something that I, I hoped by putting it into the plural I could kind of indicate. Yes. Yes, I think the first thing that comes to my mind after uh, listening, Katie, is the scene at a cocktail party mm-hmm. with th- who who the character he then is, um, the that he's then the defense attorney for the, 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 the um, former president who she is, speaking for (laughs) or translating interpreting for um and his his role and how you describe him his name is is it keys Keys, yeah Yeah, okay um keys is very um he's you do he's very awful and repulsive (laughs) i i mean not that (laughs) this is the track we want to go down as we're in the final moment (laughs) yeah but i mean it's so clear so it's so interesting how he's introduced in this one way but then later Mm -hmm. he has a completely Mm -hmm. different role and intimacy Mm -hmm. or in yeah i mean i i the other thing that i i'm kind of obsessed by is performance yes um in so many ways whether it's literal performance or the way we perform identity um or the way identities constructed through performance and context and with case the thing that was interesting to me was to you know all the authority that people seem to have a lot of it comes from context and setting and this man at a a cocktail party is a kind of sleazy person Um, and then when he steps into the courtroom he has all of the authority of the courtroom around him and that 
transforms who he is, that transforms how he behaves, that transforms how he's perceived. And I think it's a moment of of um, kind of destabilization for the narrator because she's met him at this party and reached a conclusion about who she thinks he, he is. And then she sees him in a different context and she sees people behaving as if he's something quite different to what she thought he was. And, and, and that, that startles her. Right. Because you think maybe it could have been another way. Because you see it another yes, way. Yes, I think that's I think that's right. Another, yeah, um, and also performing authority and power. Yes, is very present yes. within the scenes yes. in the courtroom. Yes, I mean, I would I would say you know th- this book in particular, and as well as my first novel, which is, which is a sports novel, which is set in the world of mixed martial arts. Um, but you know, it, it's uh, I think I'm really quite drawn to these physical locations, whether it's a courtroom or a ring, that are very circumscribed. They you know, have rules and regulations are completely artificial. Um, they're very controlled. And yet within them, you are hoping to touch upon an experience or an ideal that is absolutely genuine. So the, 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 the kind of promise of the courtroom is that even though it's all fake, it's all artifice, that nonetheless some kind of ideal of justice is going to be touched upon. You know, in, in with the sports ring, even though it's all, you know, rules and referees and everything, nonetheless that something is going to happen in there that is going to epitomize some kind of human experience. And of course that's what novels do as well, because novels are completely artificial. Beginning, middle, and end, which nothing, no story really has. Um, you know, it's it's a tool, it's a device, it's a technology. It's, it's um, and, and yet through all the artifice, I think we're all writing because we hope nonetheless that there'll be moments when we touch upon something that feels real and potentially transforming to the reader potentially (laughs) if we're lucky katie thank you so much for talking today this has been lovely thank you likewise Um, today on living writers katie kitamura her latest intimacies a novel and keep an eye out because there's another one coming down the line (laughs) from katie kitamura thanks again to reverend andrew for engineering today thanks to all you out there listening um all you living writers out there i'm t hetzel until next time
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. We're going on early. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. I'm Ryan Dolson, and this is your daily sports report. I had to turn up the mic just a little bit for that. Uh, it, was, it was turned down all the way thanks to uh, you know people using Suda before us. But uh, joined here today, I got Daniel Olson. How you doing today, Dan? Uh, I'm doing really well, actually. This has been a fun week. The weather's been awesome. Oh, yeah, finally. And, uh, I think, you know, when the sun comes out, everybody, the smiles come out. I'll say that. Exactly. Yeah, uh, no, seriously. You're already seeing, like, around my house that uh, people are, you know, throwing, like, lawn parties all the time. Everybody's playing music. People are just chilling outside. Right. And, and it really feels great. All it's, over the diag, you yeah. got, you know, people chilling in hammocks. And you got the guy talking about the fake moon landing who's back there on the diag. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's there's still a lot going on on the diag. All sorts of stuff. The happening. strike and everybody just chilling before finals and stuff. Oh, but yeah, uh, absolutely. It's uh, it's fun. It's a yeah. good time. Yeah. No. Definitely. The uh, only thing that hasn't been fun to watch is uh, Detroit Tigers baseball, of which <laughs> I have been subjected to too much of. Really. Um. Last show. I. I'm. You know. I, I have to defend myself from a lot of the uh, allegations that are, you know, at, at my lowest right now, watching this awful Tigers team, I got so many people making fun of me. They said, you said you said the Tigers looked good last week. You said the Tigers were going to sweep the Red Sox last week. I want to be clear. I didn't say that. Somebody else on the show said it, and I said, yeah, sure, I agree with that. So, yeah, technically, I, I didn't say it that. It might have been me. I mean, I, Did you? I think, you might well, look, I don't, I, I don't I'm remember. a Red Sox fan, and, right, and the yeah. first series we had was, was, rough. was not very good. Turns out we're um, even worse. Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox made pretty easy work of the Tigers last weekend. It was it was not a fun series to Kind of kicks the stretch. <laughs> Which really has me wondering, how bad are the Astros? Like, are the, are the oh, Astros, are, like... I, I, I think... They're I'll not bad, but like I think they just got that World Series hangover a little bit. I, I guess. I mean, like and this isn't too, their first one, though. So. I mean, 